0: It is a great privilege, and, it's, um, and and that's why I appreciate a simple prayer like that. You know, because uh, you know we say it uh, sometimes to the point of glibness that you know we have this wonderful freedom in this country to be able to gather together and worship God and lift our hearts before His throne and lift our hands in the presence of His people to acknowledge that we are His and. Uh, And it can become to that point of glibness, but to just truly embrace the reality of that freedom. That it's not about a freedom that we have in this given to us by our government or any laws of any land. but It's a freedom that's been given to you from the very throne of God. That God has set you free to worship him. God has set you free to honour him. God has set you free to live a life for him. And It doesn't matter what this world says. It doesn't matter what anybody, anywhere, on any corner of this planet says. You have the liberty and the freedom to lift your hands in the presence of God's people and to declare that God is good. Isn't that right? You know, so don't allow it to become glib. Don't allow it to become routine. Realize this, this is God's freedom for you. And uh, no one can take that away from us, amen? Amen. So it's wonderful to be here, it's wonderful to see you all. Um, look, I, I just, I, I, I don't want to give, you know, all the glory is God's, isn't that right? All the glory is God's, you know. Um, and it, uh, But I, I just want to acknowledge something, you know. Um, because God works through us in strange ways, doesn't he? He does things in strange ways, you know. And I want to tell you this morning, my my heart is just so. It, it was. It, I saw somebody here today that just made me leap inside, you know. Um, you know, 25 years ago, a fella came to me and said, "Chris, will you do a Bible study with me?" You know. And and he's right there. Ken, it's so glorious to see you, man. So wonderful to see you. Because that Bible study has still got me teaching the Bible, you know. So, um, wonderful. Romans. Let's go to the book of Romans. If you haven't been with us in recent weeks, we've started in the book of Romans. We're up to the fourth chapter. So, turn there with me if you will. Um, Not if you will. You will, won't you? Yeah. Romans, if you will allow it in, and I guess I might have said this already, but if you will allow this book into your life, it will revive you. It really will. As it has done for countless people throughout the history of the church, ever since it was first written down from the heart of the Lord through the apostle Paul to the saints and the churches there in Rome and to every other saint that has heard it. If we will allow this book in, it will revive our hearts. You know, it begins, doesn't it, with Paul just declaring this, this wonderful, wonderful gospel that he is not ashamed of, you know. As he cried out, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to all those that what? Well, believe. And this is, the, this is the fundamental thing of this gospel. It's God's salvation by grace through faith. You know, and, he, and he talked about this gospel and then he began to talk about how mankind, and he spent three chapters describing how mankind is in a hopeless state that it doesn't matter who we are, doesn't matter where we've come from, it doesn't matter what our, what our lineage is, what our heritage may be, it doesn't matter how mankind sees us in their air eyes, the only thing that matters is that we all are seen in the eyes of God as sinners who need forgiveness. And he spent three chapters bringing home that truth, driving that truth into the heart of God's people. You're separated. You need to be brought back into relationship. And he begins to identify... You know, the Gentile world, and he talked in that first chapter of that slippery, or that spiral that mankind is on, when mankind began to turn away from the glory of the Creator and begin to worship the creature rather than the Creator. And of course, that's the world we live in, isn't that right? You know? And that spiral that was happening, and he, and, he, and he talked about the sinfulness of mankind and where it leads us. And then he talked about religious men and how religious men trying to reach God according to their own merits and their own abilities. And he, and he, and he, just, and he debunked the, every effort of mankind. And we get to this fourth chapter, this wonderful fourth chapter, and the whole thing begins to change. Now he's exposed the problem for mankind. Now he begins to bring the answer. And we started last week talking about salvation by grace through faith and faith alone. This is what stirs our hearts. So when we realize we are sinners, when we realize that all of our efforts, no matter, no matter how, how, how much we work at it, no matter how high on the totem pole we're able to drive ourselves up, it doesn't matter. We realize that ultimately we're going to let go of that pole and we're going to slip and we're going to hit the ground. And that's what where Paul wants us. It's every man, woman and child on the ground, on level ground, not at a totem pole, but at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ where all mankind, where the great equalisation takes place, and we all have to look up, and we all have to hear him say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. We all have to hear those words. We all have to accept that. We need that salvation. And so Paul begins to begins to share it. And, uh, and he's been declaring in this fourth chapter, uh, through the example of Abraham, um, or the, the faith of Abraham that the only way to be of the only way to be accepted again to God, you know, the only way to have absolute assurance. You know, there's a lot of people that knock on doors, there's a lot of people that do a lot of things, but the only way to have absolute assurance that God accepts us, of course, you know it Christian, don't you? Is in the person of Jesus Christ. Is the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross for us, we need to visit this regularly. No amount of good deeds, no amount of, no sets of rules or regulations that we're able to keep. Nothing can bring or nothing can produce secure salvation. And why? I know I've already said it. Why? Because in my keeping of rules and regulations, I can't be perfect. As good as I am, as good as you are, as good as any human being can be, we are all going to slip, aren't we? We're all going to slip up. Why? Because none of us is perfect. But God and, and, and has created, and this is the wonderful wisdom of God, you know, recognizing that and knowing that about us, even though we don't recognize it and know it about ourselves, through his incredible wisdom, he has established the salvation that is based upon faith, not our efforts. That's the wisdom of God. And because of that, I can sleep at night, you know. What about you? Because of that, I can lay my head on the pillow and rest, knowing that I'm safely in his hands, you know. Because surely I would not be sleeping if heaven was dependent upon my faithfulness. If heaven was dependent upon my obedience. No, no, no. And so the Holy Spirit through the scripture has gone to great lengths to let you know that God has done it all. God has done it all. God alone has bridged that gap that exists between sinful man and a holy, righteous, pure God. And all I have to do is believe. This is the gospel of grace. All I have to do is believe. All I have to do is have faith. And so now as we continue through this fourth chapter, I don't think we'll get past much past verse 17. That's where we're up to. But as we continue through this fourth chapter, Abraham's example will continue to express that, express the nature of true faith. So what's the story? We know the story. Abraham received a promise from God. And he received that promise from God by faith again. See, that's the thing that we saw last week and that is God's salvation has always been by grace through faith it always has been and that's what was highlighted and so he receives this promise does Abraham what was the promise the promise was that Abraham and his wife Sarah would have a son and it would be a special son you know not just any son but it would be a son that through whom Genesis chapter 13 tells us the entire world would be blessed. Of course, it's looking forward to Jesus Christ, looking forward to the cross. And Abraham had, a, had an insight into that. While he didn't understand it fully, when he took his son up the Mount Moriah in obedience to God and he laid his son upon that, upon that altar, you know the story. He had an insight into what God was ultimately going to do through his Son. And that's because and he was able to do that because he believed, again, Hebrews tells us, he believed in resurrection even back then. Abraham believed in resurrection because the promise had been made. The promise was through this child, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And yet you are here, God, asking me to lay this child's life down upon the altar and sacrifice it. He knew. He knew that the command of God would not contravene the, the, the previous spoken word of God. And so he believed in faith that God would raise him up from the dead. And it was all a picture of Christ. It was all a wonderful picture of Christ looking forward to Jesus. This was a promise, isn't it? You think back to that promise made to Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. This is a promise of incredible importance and amazing consequences. But what you also have to realize that when that promise was given to Abraham, it was still 25 years away from being fulfilled. You know, you can only imagine We'll read it in a moment, but you can only imagine waiting 25 years. Some of you have. Waiting 25 years and trusting in a promise before there is even the slightest evidence that that was going to happen. That's the reality of living by faith. That's the reality of living by faith. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. The substance of things hoped for. That which is what God has said. He has planted His truth in your heart, and we hope and we submit ourselves to that. And the evidence is well, we haven't seen it yet, but we believe it. That's faith, isn't it? The promise is guaranteed. How wonderful. The promise is absolutely guaranteed, but when we have to wait, and this is when we look at Abraham, and this is why he's such a wonderful example. Who likes to wait? Come on, 21st century Australians. I'm glad nobody put their hand up because we've not been raised that way, have we? But when you have to wait and you have to wait and you have to wait, and this is why Abraham's example is so wonderful, because then in the natural, it is so easy to begin to convince ourselves, well, maybe this is not what God said at all. It's so easy to begin to convince ourselves that maybe this is not what God is doing in us at all. It's so easy to begin to convince yourself that this is not God's will for my life at all. And we begin to cast around and we begin to look in different directions and suddenly we find ourselves adrift at sea with no direction and no hope whatsoever because we fail to believe. We fail to hold on. This is why Abraham is so wonderful. And let's not forget That 25 years later, after the promise, he was 99 years old. And Sarah was 90 years old. And what does that remind us? Well, that reminds us that this promise of God to Abraham is humanly impossible, isn't it? A promise that mankind certainly could have no involvement in, in fulfilling. There were no fertility uh, um, institutions back then, you know. No, no, no. She was well past menopause. And he was as good as a dead stick, wasn't he? (laughs) That was Abraham. So Abraham had a choice. He had one choice. What is it? Well, he had two. I either believe God or I don't. And that's what brings us to verse 17. Are you ready? Read it with me, if you will. So as it is written... I have made you a father. See, this is God speaking to Abraham at the age of 75. I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. In the presence of God whom he, that is Abraham, believed. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which are not or do not exist as though they did. So what I want you to notice this morning as we look at this is notice what is the object of Abraham's faith. Of this great example to us. It says, He believed, He believed God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. See, the quality of my faith is about the object that I place my trust in. That's the issue. Faith is never about my ability to make myself believe something will happen. I know it's often presented to us that way, but I want to say that sentence again. Faith is not about my ability to make myself believe that something will happen. It's not like that anymore that I can believe or make a pink elephant fly through that window right now. My faith, that's not what faith is about. It's not my ability to believe. Look, I watched a young man, this is one of the funniest things in my life I've seen. I don't know why it's funny, it just hit my, it hit my funny bone and you'll probably think I'm a mean-spirited person, but here's the truth. I can remember watching a young man jump up on a stage at a concert and launch himself into the air, believing that the crowd was gonna catch him because he was gonna do some crowd surfing. You know, we've seen it done so often, haven't we? But despite the belief that he had in the crowd, what did they do? They parted. They parted, and he hit the deck hard. And I stood there and went, "That's funny." You know, uh, don't don't misunderstand me. You know, I'm not saying we don't have to believe. That's not what I'm saying. Not what I'm saying. And we're going to read in verse 21. I don't think we'll get there until next week. But we're going to read in verse 21 that Abraham was fully persuaded. That God would do what he had promised. So there is a convincing of self that God will do what he says. Yes, that is true. But again, me generating enough belief is not what, make, it's not what makes God follow through with what he has promised. And that's just a perversion of, of, of God. To think that we can influence him by the things that we can generate in our own consciousness or in our own mind or whatever, if we just sit there and grin and and believe enough and refuse to not believe that we can make God do something, no, that's not what the Bible teaches us. No, the decisive issue of faith is what we know about God who we are placing our faith in. It's what we know about God who we are placing our faith in. If my faith is in God who can create life, where it did not exist, either I believe that two years, or God'll let me hit the floor. Which am I? That's the thing. You see, the issue is not whether or not we have faith. The Bible tells us we all have faith. Again, it's been said so often, I've said it so many times, you're all exercising faith right now, aren't you? You're sitting in that chair. There is was a point when you allowed your body to rest down on that chair that you believed that it was able to hold you up. We exercise faith each and every day all the time, trusting and believing. So the issue is not whether or not we have faith. Yeah, we want stronger faith. We want our faith to increase. But the decisive issue is where I place the faith that I have and what I know about the one that I'm placing my faith in. Did you hear that? The decisive issue is where I place my faith and what I know about the one that I'm placing my faith in. Abraham placed his faith in the God who gives life to the dead. You ever stopped and thought about that statement? Abraham placed his faith in the God who gives life to the dead. That's an amazing statement. You know, the God I serve... And I hope you say the same thing. The God I serve makes dead things live. He brings life to people's lives. He brings life to people's homes. He brings life to people's marriages, their relationships. In my case, God came into my marriage when it wasn't terminally ill, it wasn't struggling, it wasn't in trouble. No, it was dead. It was deceased. Love was gone. And all that remained were the embers of bitterness and disappointment and hurt and hopelessness. And that's all that filled our home at that time. But God brought life where there was death. Because we, and again, it's not about us. Because Donna and I chose to believe him. Chose to believe what he says about marriage. Chose to believe what he says about relationships between husbands and wives. Wonderful, it's a wonderful testimony. I love how God got us, and there we were for seven years together, just at one another, trying but not trying, you know, not growing up, and all this. And finally, we exploded, and Donna went that way, and I went that way. How smart is our God? Because way out here, Donna met someone who told her about Jesus, and way out here, I met someone who told me about Jesus and way like this it went, the journey was like this, it was, it was about a year long, you know, until finally, bang, there we were sitting in the same church together, you know, but we chose to believe and we praise him for it every single day, you know, that's what God does, he brings life where there was death, And most significantly, God brings life to the sinner who is dead in trespasses and sins. Abraham knew that. He knew that God was a life-giving God and he trusted him. He trusted him. He also knew that God calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Think about that as well. Think about that God. God speaks about things before they exist because he knows they will exist. One of the most abused verses in the New Testament, in my mind. That's God, remember? That's not us. A lot of people want to apply that to their own faith. That they can bring things into existence if they just act like God. No, 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 no. This is God. This is the one we trust. This is the one we place our faith in. God speaks about things, so that tells me I've got to know the things that God speaks about, doesn't it? God speaks about things before they exist because he and he alone knows that they will exist. God started calling Abraham, if you know the story, um, God started calling him father when he made the promise to him. That was 25 years before the child was born. God is calling him Father. Now, I've been referring him to Abraham, but up until this point in Genesis chapter 13, God knew he was called Abram. (coughs) And God even changed his name in acknowledgement of what God was going to do because God knew it would happen. His name was Abram, which meant exalted father, which already would have been a joke amongst his friends, right? You know? He's a 75-year-old guy. He doesn't really have a son to his wife. He doesn't have a son to his wife. And he's got a name called Exalted Father. You know, at what point are his friends saying, come on, mate, let's think about this. And then he gets up one day and God says, well, God's changed my name. My name is now Abraham. You know what that means? That means father of multitudes. Multitudes. Now Now what are his friends saying to him in the morning every day that he gets up and he says, you call me Abraham now. Because that's what God has called me. Abraham, come on, man. I mean, there's optimism, that's good. But this is optimism gone crazy, right? So the relationships might have been tested at that time. But Abraham, regardless of what people were saying about what God had called him or what God has said, what was Abraham doing? They can be laughing behind their tent doors. They can be doing all that. But what was Abraham doing? Abraham was rejoicing as if it's already happened. That's what Abraham was doing. He was rejoicing as if that special son was already born. Isaac, you know. See, this is the faith. This is the faith, Christian, that brings us great, great comfort. You know why? Because God does not only speak to Abraham about what he's going to do, but he speaks to you and I about what he's going to do. Isn't that right? God speaks to you and me. And this... Faith is what brings great comfort to our souls. You know what he says about you? In Ephesians chapter chapter 1, he says, you are blessed. Okay, yeah? Not only blessed, but you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. All that heaven has to offer is yours, child of God. And then he says in the next chapter, he says, hey, but you are seated in heavenly places in chapter 2 and verse 6. And we all love Romans chapter 8. We come to Romans chapter 8 and we find that God says, hey, you are predestined. You are called. You are judged. You are glorified. Present tense. As far as God is concerned, the job is done. That's who you are. Look, the God who calls things which did not exist as though they have says, we are glorified. I want you to stop and think about this. That we are glorified beings seated in heavenly places. That's what he says about you right now. I know you think you are sitting on those uncomfortable apricot chairs. They're not pink, by the way. They're (laughs) apricot. I know you think you're sitting on those apricot chairs. But as far as God is concerned, you are a glorified being sitting in heavenly places. Think about it. Think about it. Spend time recognising that and realise that when you get up in the morning and you look at yourself in the mirror and you go, there's nothing glorified about that. And this body certainly does not feel. Faith tells me in that moment it will be so. Faith tells me it will be so because God has said it will be so. So, you know, always remember, I know, always remember that this faith, this great faith is not just about God's great plan for our eternal salvation. Could you hear me get up here week in and week out saying that? You are chosen by God. You are, you are, God God is going to take you home. We have this glorious hope. Lift your heaven because you know that your salvation is near. Lift your heaven. Lift your head because you know your salvation is near. Every day is just a day closer to glory. We say that all the time. But you must understand this wonderful faith is not just about God's great grand plan for our eternal salvation. But it's about God with you right now and tomorrow. And if the Lord should tarry the day after that, you know, what does he call you? Again, I just thought about this last night. You know know what what he says to you? He says in John 15 that you are his friend. You stop and think about that. That you are a friend of God. You go to 2 Corinthians and he tells us that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We go to Romans chapter 8 and we read those final verses from about verse 36 on down to verse 39. And we read that there is nothing in heaven, nothing on earth. There is nothing created, not death, not life, nothing that can separate us from him. There is nothing. You know, and one of the most wonderful things that God says about me and about you in my mind is in John chapter 10 when he calls me his sheep and that he is my shepherd. And he said, my sheep, they hear my voice and they know and I know them, he says, and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who hath given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and my Father are one. Did you see what was just described there? There were two sets of hands. You're in the hands of Jesus who is in the hands of God. There are two sets of hands and they hold you firm and nothing shall separate you. Did you hear that word never? I love the word never when it applies to my eternal security. You will never perish because you're in his hands. And I know people get all upset about that and they say, well, that's just arrogant of you. You know, you can't be so secure. You can't be so sure. What if you decide to jump out of those hands? I mean, it's foolishness. That's not what, the, it's not what Jesus is saying. It's not what he's saying. He's saying you are in the hands of God and you will never perish. What does faith tell me? That tells me I will never perish. That's the faith I hold on to. Because I know something about the one who I am trusting myself to. This is what God says about you. There's just a few verses. That's what God says about you. And it doesn't matter what anybody else in this world will ever say about you. You are a child of God. I mean, you may have come to Him broken. You may have come to Him sinful. People may have seen you as worthless. You may have even seen yourself as worthless. You know, we may have thought that we would never amount to anything in this life. But not anymore, Christian, right? Not anymore. Revelation chapter 5 says, Our God has made us to be kings and priests and we will reign with him, it says. What do you do with that promise? Do you just tuck it away as like, uh, I don't know. No, no, no. That's you. You are. You are. Kings and priests, how God has made you to be and you will reign with him. And if you can't believe that, Revelation chapter 20 says the same thing. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says the same thing. God repeats himself over and over again saying, you are his. Peter speaks of you, child of God, in his first epistle, second chapter. He says, you are a chosen race. You are, listen to this, you're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. It's the same thing. It's the same thing as being in His hands. You belong to Him. Your faith is placed in what God says. And that makes it so. Just as much as Abraham believed that his unborn son was still a fact or was a fact. You know, you know the, tragic thing, the tragic thing is that there are many people that place their faith in a God that is less than the God of Abraham. That God offers them no security. They don't know from one day until the next if they are truly heaven bound. Do you imagine living like that, Christian? That God can perform for them no miracles. They can't trust their marriages, their jobs. They can't trust their lives to their little God. Their little God doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. To these people, having placed their faith in such a God, they can only know him as a distant observer. That's horrible, isn't it? That's just horrible. A God with no power to help in time of need. No power. But then there's those who have faith like Abraham, who love and serve a great God. When he speaks, what? When he speaks, it is done. His word is truth, is it not? And it shall come to pass. His commands, they stand in your heart. His commands stand in your heart. And he shows himself strong on behalf of those who reverently fear him. This is the faith of Abraham. If our view of God is exalted like that, just as Abraham, if we perceive God as He really, really is, He brings life, let me say it again, where there is death. He speaks of our glorious destiny. If we, Christian, place our faith in Him without, and I've got to say it, without wavering, that pleases God. So Abraham says... Have I read it? Have I read it? I'm terribly sorry. (laughs) So Abraham says in verse 18, we will come back to this. Who, contrary to hope, in hope, believed so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, it says, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Okay, I do want to come back to this. I'll come back to this next time because I think we need to consider in those verses there, there are some very real obstacles to our faith. Very real obstacles to our faith. And, and, you know, and what I want us to do, and one of the things is the staggering nature of God's promise to us. That itself can be a challenge, can't it? To your naturalistic faith, uh, life that we have here, you know? It can be. And we think of Abraham almost, you know, certainly a 100-year-old man fathering a child to a 90-year-old woman. That's staggering, isn't it? That's staggering. Yet his faith, we read, did not waver. You know, so when it says Abraham believed God, the, the tense that it is, it suggests, or actually says to us, that he believed God at the promise of when he received the promise and he kept on believing until the promise was fulfilled. You know? The bottom line is he refused to listen to human reasoning. That's the bottom line. You know? He refused to look at the reality of man's hope and reason. That's what it means by hope against hope. There, you know? He refused to dwell. We say all these things, but he refused to do it. He refused to dwell on the negative. God had given him a promise and that was enough for him. Look, I I don't know what your needs are this morning. And I'll conclude it here, but I don't know what your needs are this morning. But God has a promise in the matter of that need. That's what I can tell you this morning, whatever it is. And the challenge for each of us is to act on faith. Learn. Learn what faith is. Learn it. You know, learn that nothing else pleases God. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that, you know. Learn that nothing less than that, and we'll see this in Romans 14, actually is sin, you know that? To not trust God. And simply knowing all of this, and this will all unfold in weeks to come as we go through this book. All of this simply is for us to be encouraged to take God and his word and just hold on to it. Hold on to it. Despite what's happening around you, despite what your desires are saying inside of you, hold on to his word. What's the alternative? I'll tell you what the alternative is. The alternative is to allow a questioning heart to dog your faith. Tell you what, if you allow that, if you start to question what God has said, that dog will be there all of your life. He will be there nipping at your heels. You know what he says? You know what he barks? His bark is relentless. His bark never stops. It's always the same. Can, it's asking the question, can you really, can I really trust God? You know what? And rather than having a life that is marked by peace, That is a person who stands up with a long list of worries and regrets. You know why? Because their God is too little. Because their God is too distant. Let that not be us Christians. We serve a great God, don't we? Amen. Amen? We serve a great God. One who gives life to the dead. One who calls things which do not exist as though they already do exist. That's the Christian life. That's what faith is. It's a life of constant anticipation. You might say, well, that that sounds a little a little bit troublesome. Trusting in things that haven't happened. No, no, no. That's a wonderful, constant anticipation that is always looking for God to be faithful to his word, knowing that he will. That's a glorious way to live. It's a wonderful way to live. Always, you know, what's going to happen today? What is God going to fulfill in my life today? That life of constant anticipation. Many times, hey, we go into the day trusting God and His word, not even understanding how God could ever possibly do it. But knowing that He will. Knowing that He will. And seeing that, and knowing that, He brings life. I'll say it again, where there was death. And you will see it over and over and over and over again. That's a glorious way to live. Because I can promise you, I can tell you, I can testify. I know all of you in this room can testify exactly the same thing. You have seen God bring life where there was death, have you not? Over and over and over again. See him bring into existence the very things that he had spoken about. It never ceases to amaze me. And we will say, yes, Lord. What you say, because of who you are, is enough for me. And he births births things in human hearts. Oh, no. Should we come back next week to this? Amen. All right. I think that's a great spot to pause and gather around the communion table. I'm going to invite the worship team up. and um... You know, I, I think back to that time, I, I, I heard myself getting dobbed in by, um, by Rod. Thanks, mate. Um, but I think <laughs> back to that time when the Lord was working in my life and, and we're in those darkest days, you know. I remember someone came to me, and I um, don't remember who it was, but I just remember this woman sitting down with me. I'd just heard about this Jesus. Actually, I'd been in hospital, and I, I, hadn't done, I wasn't doing well. And, um, and someone came to me and simply said, you know, there's a way. And they left me with that. And I didn't really know what that way was. And, uh, But ultimately what happened was I left that hospital bed and I went back into this world. It was a very scary place. You know, it's amazing. I found in-hospital in that time to be the safest place in the world, you know, because I was afraid of going back out there and entering back into the same... Yeah, that I was in beforehand. And I, I, I left the hospital. I did exactly that. I went straight back to where I came from. And I was trying to... I can't say that word. neath can't say that word. Someone say it for me, please. Thank you. Myself, from the pain of it all. And I remember driving up York Street. And um, as I was driving up York Street, um, so I could take you to the exact spot, you know, something spoke to me. I don't know what it was. Then I didn't know what it was. Now I know it was the Holy Spirit. But something spoke to my heart and said, remember those words... There is a way, right? There is a way. And the man that said those words to me gave to me a phone number, which I pulled over to the side of the road. Just happened to be phone boxes in those days, you know. And uh, stepped into the phone box. I rang that number, arranged to meet that person. I sat down with that person. That person told me the gospel. He told me who Jesus, he didn't say any, he didn't give me any promise about, you know, where my life might be going. But he just said, you need to know who Jesus is in your life. You need to know that. That's the most important thing. You forget about all the other stuff. And he shared the gospel. And then he said, the ball has been hit to you. It's in your court. It's up to you now what you do with it. And he stood up and he walked out and left me. I thought, thanks, mate. But he knew what he was doing. It needed to be real. And I'm skipping a whole lot of stuff to get to this woman. Shortly after that, I met this woman. And she said to me, this God you're hearing about, he is a God of restoration. That word. He restores things. He's a God of restoration. You know. And I hang on to that word. And that word just set itself in my heart. And, uh, and day by day, no actually it was minute by minute, moment by moment. I believed that. That God would restore things in my life. That he has a purpose for my life. And all these things started to flutter in. I knew nothing about God and how to talk to him. I remember, I remember when I was a child, my mum had taught me the Lord's Prayer. And I remember lying in my bed every night, mechanically just praying the Lord's Prayer over and over and over again. That's all I knew. But as I prayed it, this thing just kept coming back. God restores. This is who God is, He restores. And I needed to know that about him so that I could trust him. This is the faith of Abraham. It's all about the one that you place your faith in. And it's about who he is. There is only one true and living God. And he is Jesus Christ, is he not? And he came into this world and he died upon a cross for your sin and for my sin. And he said, if we will believe that, if we will accept that, Because he is righteous, he is perfect, he is holy. If we will accept his forgiveness, he will take our sinfulness and he will impart, and this is what we will see next week, he will impart his righteousness to our account and God will see us as righteous. You see, that's what had to happen. I had to get right. I had to get righteous. That's what God does. Only God does that. If I will believe and I will have faith and I got right, I got righteous. Donna got right, she got righteous and the moment we were right, we were righteous, we were trusting the right God, we are in relationship with the right God, then he began to do what? Restore. You've got to get people, you've got to get the horse in front of the car. If you're not a Christian this morning, you need to give your life to him. You need to surrender your life to Him. You need to be born again. You need to accept the forgiveness that God has won for you upon the cross. And you have to believe it and you have to follow it. Allow Him to restore you. Allow Him to change you. Allow Him to wash out all of that sinful desire and replace it with His desire for your life. It's already been told to you. It's in here. In here. That's our God. Is he good? Will he do that for you? Yes, Yes, he will. Amen. Christian, this bread right in your hand. It represents the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And he told us, if we will eat of that bread of life, we will never hunger again. He was talking about spiritual life. This represents the blood of Jesus Christ. Likewise, we would drink of that. We will never thirst again. Did Jesus die for your sins? Did he shed his blood upon a cross for you? You can take this in remembrance of that. And you can be reminded today. You can be reminded today that whatever God has said, it will come to pass. Your life is not worthless. There is purpose. There is direction. There is hope. There is destiny. There are all these wonderful words. And it's a great journey. It's an incredible journey. Let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven we thank you for your son Jesus and what he has done for us Lord we look back and we, we lift our eyes to the cross and we see our saviour high and lifted up knowing that he has drawn us to that place drawn to hear him say those words Father forgive them drawn to hear those words it is finished Drawn to hear those words that we will be with him in paradise. Drawn to know that it was for us. Thank you, Father. Let's take the bread together. Let's remember what Jesus has done for us. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for washing us clean, establishing us as righteous in your sight, though our sins be red as scarlet, we're whiter than snow, Lord God. Thank you that you've said that about me. You've said that about my brothers and sisters. Thank you, glorious God, for this forgiveness. Let's take the cup together. Amen. We're going to see that Abraham worshipped God in the face of the promise that was made to him. Let's worship God, shall we?